That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, Cynical listeners. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that Jeremy and I will be doing a live show with our friends from the China Institute in New York on Monday, October 9th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. We'll be chatting with Gary Liu, CEO of the South China Morning Post. Gary comes from the tech world. He was formerly CEO of Dig and before that was the head of Spotify Labs. We'll be talking to him about the challenges he faces, not only steering a venerable old newspaper in difficult times, but also about pressures that the SAMP may be coming under from Beijing and from the new owner of Hong Kong's storied paper of record, Alibaba. Tickets are $10 for China Institute members, $5 for students, and $20 for non-members. Look for the registration link on our website or in the SupChina newsletter and hope to see you in New York at the China Institute on Monday, October 9th. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I am joined again from Austin, Texas, by SupChina Editor-in-Chief Jeremy Goldcorn, whose return to the editorial helm of our website and newsletter I very much look forward to, as much as I've enjoyed sending out those little roundups in my name, Jeremy. Greet the good listeners, won't you? Hi, y'all. How you doing? Uh, I'd just like to remind you that SUP China is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, straight from the fire hose at our website, SUPChina.com. And that is S-U-P China. SUP as in what's up or supper. It is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. So we're very excited today to be joined uh, by Richard McGregor, formerly of the Financial Times Bureaus in Beijing and here in Washington, and author most recently of what I can say without hesitation is the best book on the relationship between the United States, China, and Japan that I have encountered Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, and the Fate of U.S. Power in the Pacific Century. I attended the book launch party last night here in D.C., and it was a great gathering of smart China-watching types, all of whom I'm sure are just going to love this book and, like me, are going to recommend it without reservation. Anyway, it will be edifying to any reader, actually, from the undergraduate to the, the veteran watcher of East Asian affairs. Richard McGregor, welcome to Seneca. Thank you for having me on. Uh, so first, Richard, I have to tell you that your last book, uh, The Party, uh, caused me some amusing and kind of horrifying moments working at Baidu. Um, I, I was telling Lucy, your former colleague, that on our uh, podcast a few weeks ago, but uh, within a month or so of, the, of its publication, suddenly my phone started ringing with all these journalists asking me whether Robin Lee had a red machine on his desk. <laughs> well, it, you, well, you could have told him immediately he didn't because he's he's a private company, right? Well, but I think you, you actually said that there were some large private companies that, that did and that it would qualify. But uh, I did. I did say that. And then I also, so I, I remember there was this one particular European reporter who was uh, really kind of persistent. And he said, okay, no red machine, but how many of your board members are Communist Party members? I, I answered zero, none of them. And he said, no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm not kidding. I said, no, no, really. And I sent, you know, quick bios of who they are, many of whom are, are non-Chinese. There was a Japanese man. There's a, a couple of Americans. Uh, and then, you know, private entrepreneurial types who aren't party members. And then he, he wrote back, okay, but what about the shadow board? <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel vindicated a little bit because a lot of people did say to me later, oh, that's... BS about the red machines or the red phones. But if you, you know, since then we've seen pictures of Xi Jinping at his desk and what's on it? Three big fat red yeah. phones. Yeah, yeah. Richard, it's pretty odd to me to say that a book of this kind hasn't actually already been written. Uh, I mean, on the face of it, anyone even glancingly familiar with the politics of the region should be aware of just how important, how fraught, and how complicated the relationship between China, Japan, and the United States is. It seems like the obvious topic of a book. There have been innumerable books about any two sides of the triangle, Japan, China, US, China, uh, China, US. 
but what do you suppose has kept others in your profession from taking on the whole three-way relationship? Well, it's a good point, actually, and I'm going to catch Kaiser out here because he just said that this was his favorite book on US, Japan, and China. And I was going to say, what was your second favorite? <laughs> um, because there, there aren't any. And part of my sort of whole, I mean, let's to start with, I didn't write this book because I thought I was filling a market gap or something. But I was, I've lived for a long time in both Japan and China. I was basically interested in the topic. But if you write about Japan and China post-war, you can't write about them sensibly without pulling the US in because the US is basically the center of East Asia since the war. So once I was writing about two countries, I was automatically writing about three countries. And I just did it because it, for me, it, it was a, a fascinating topic. Well, I, I just to, to respond to your accusation, I wasn't just trying to be polite. Uh, uh, China Eyes Japan, for example. I mean, as you say, none of these books that are written about the bilateral relationship fail to include the United States. Just none of them sort of address it with the kind of thoroughness that you didn't, you know, pay sort of equal attention, make it sort of, what is it, an equal lateral triangle or- That's like, right, to triangulate, as Bill Clinton would have said. Right. And I tried yeah. to triangulate it at every turn. <laughs> Uh, great. But I mean, this is a book that's set against the backdrop of the decline and, and perhaps even the end of Pax Americana. Uh, I think all of us can appreciate a lot of the good that came from this long period of American primacy in the Western Pacific, you know, that it really did allow for the emergence of a lot of democratic uh, countries, a lot of democratic transitions, that it created conditions for real prosperity and, and it, that it was, you know, really actually crucial in maintaining the peace, more, more importantly, between China and Japan. And I'm sure there are a lot of people, you know, even in China, who would recognize that that Pax Americana was was important. Uh, but your your book takes as a sort of starting point the fact that Pax Americana papered over some of the diplomatic failures, uh, what you call you know, sort of the frozen in the '50s fault lines, Taiwan and the Korean Peninsula, for instance. So early on in the book, you note something that I think encapsulates the essence of this whole shift in the relationship, you know, the astonishing disparity uh, in growth among the three countries. So I'm quoting you here, since 1990, the U.S. economy has tripled in size. China's output has increased 30-fold. Over the same period, Japan has grown by just 23%. Yeah, I mean, there's another quote in the book which encapsulates that uh, from a Chinese academic. He said that, you know, the China hasn't just destabilized the region by getting strong. The U.S. and Japan have destabilized the region by getting weaker. And so there's a constant and, you know, ongoing recalibration between all three of them. It's so funny. We, we actually had that, that quote very uh, – Jeremy was supposed to jump in immediately. <laughs> Sorry, that's Jeremy. I, I've stolen your thunder. No, that's okay. We'll, you, we'll you, cut that you stole up. my thunder. But, yeah, do go on. <laughs> well, I guess the, the, the big point is, and, and uh, Kaiser touched on this, that, you know, Asia has been obviously uh, a stupendous economic success since 1945, North Korea aside, um, and we can come back to that. But my big pitch of thought is that it's, it's also been a political failure because if you think about it, you know, the Korean Civil War is, has never been solved. The Chinese Civil War, China-Taiwan uh, has never been solved, resolved. Sino-Japanese relations these days, I think, are worse than they've been for decades. Once that could all be, if not papered over, put aside, if you like. But I think the rise of China changes all of that. And it's quite natural, in my view, and totally unsurprising that China having been a major beneficiary of Pax Americana and the sort of broader so-called, you know, liberal world order and the like, that China, uh, now becoming more powerful, um, would look uh, like to, number one, look after its own security. It doesn't want to rely on America to keep the Malacca Straits open and the like. And number two, that it naturally sees itself as the dominant power in Asia. And once China is in a position to assert that, then it's going to run up against the uh, US. And I think that's what we're seeing happening now. So the reckoning of your book's title is is really mainly a reckoning with this newly muscular China then? Yeah. Well, essentially, China changes everything. It's always been the case that China is going to destabilize the world, whether it succeeds or fails. And in fact, it's much more destabilizing if it succeeds, because everybody has to make space for China, otherwise it'll make space for itself. And that's a very difficult process. And it's much more difficult, I think, because of China itself. For example, you know, the China would like the US to leave. 
East Asia, I think. I don't think they want them to leave quickly. They want kind of, you know, more sort of bourgeois decline, if you like, the US to sort of slowly back away. But other countries don't want the US to leave. South Korea, Japan, Singapore, maybe parts of the Philippines, Australia, Vietnam, Vietnam, another one coming to the fore now. So there's a real contradiction there. And the big problem with that is that the other countries don't trust China. And the most important other country in Asia is Japan, which, of course, a lot of people forget about, but is still a formidable power. Part of this relative economic decline is is responsible for that, having sort of forgotten about Japan. And I think one of the things that I, I, I would say is that there are a lot of the China watchers who were in the room last night at your party who, who don't know Japan. It's, it's a weird lacuna, I think, uh, because it is just, it figures so prominently in all of the recent history. Anyway, I, I mean, the, the book, uh, when people have asked me about it, I, I tell them that uh, what's what's daunting about trying to understand the Pacific Triangle, I think, is just the sheer complexity of it. Uh, so damn many moving parts. I mean, there's so many personalities and factions and interest groups and so much historical baggage. But that's what makes the book so good. You know, it's your willingness to just sort of wade in there uh, and and go at the complexity without trying to dumb it down. Or I mean, as you say last night, you didn't try to to, to shoehorn it into some some silly model, some political science IR theory model at all. There's no effort in it to do that at all. In fact, you you really sort of tell the tale in all of its messiness. I mean, we're talking about any one, you know, say leader, a, a prime minister or, or, or a president sitting in Tokyo or in Beijing or in Washington, dealing with factions within his own country, dealing with at any one point how those factions relate to their counterparts within the other. I mean, it's incredibly messy and there's no easy periodization of it, right? Um, it doesn't fit nicely into any, in this period, things were good and then things got, you know, it's it's just. No, I think I wanted to, one way to explain this, and I think the best way to explain it, you know, we're going to talk about history at some stage and the history of history issues and all that, but you've got to explain the politics of Japan inside China and the politics of China inside Japan. And that sounds very nerdy, but uh, unless you get inside the internal politics of both countries, you can't explain their foreign policy towards each other. And that's really what I tried to do. And I think I, I did take on too much. Uh, it's, a, you know, the book goes from the 50s. You can't cover everything. Uh, I certainly I didn't try and shoehorn it into any kind of IR theory, which is a good thing because I don't really understand them. And so I would have missed well, that none up. Of them, none of them are, are capacious enough. None of them actually fit the data. I don't now, I just want to tell the story, basically, right. and people can work it out from there. And it, I think it's a, you know, it's a great story, great personalities, and I, I've simply tried to do that, and then people can can take away from that what they will. Richard, I think in this podcast we're, we're going to move roughly chronologically as your book does, but there's something that th- threads throughout it that I'd like to ask uh, about first. It's kind of distilled in this great quote, the sorts of of which I can't recall, and Google hasn't really helped me, um, but I jotted it down. The Americans like the Chinese, but they don't like China. The Americans like Japan, but they don't like the Japanese. Do you largely agree with this, or is it, use, is it a useful shorthand? Well, it's a, I, I don't entirely agree with it. It's a very useful shorthand. The reason you can't find it is because uh, I think I, I haven't seen it before, but there's a very good friend of mine. He's an economist in China. He's quite a sort of, in Chinese terms, a right-wing free market economist. But he, I was just discussing this with him one day in Beijing, and he just said it to me. And I said, my God, you have really struck on something there. Because obviously, it's a very jarring quote in many ways, because obviously, there's lots of Americans and Japanese who are good friends and the like. But big picture, uh, it's quite striking. And I don't think many people really understand this outside of those sort of narrow corridors is how difficult the Americans and the Japanese have found it to get on a lot of the times. How many people senior in the US government have not liked dealing with Japan? And this is a long-standing ally. I mean, Henry Kissinger, James Baker, Robert Zerlick. Brent Scowcroft. Brent Scowcroft. I was amazed. This is a guy, he's a hardened national security professional. Um, many, you know, is respected uh, across the parties, dealt with every nasty dictator on the planet. And he said in his authorized biography, he said, oh, the hardest country of all to deal with was Japan. And I thought, my God, that's 
That's a weird thing to say. So the other side of the coin is Americans and China is that I think, you know, America and China, both big, boisterous continental economies, they get on as individuals, they can speak to each other directly, whereas that's often difficult with the the Japanese. And of course, it plays into- And Richard, if I I may interrupt, um, I mean, as a, a fellow foreigner resident in the United States who has also lived in China- the Americans and the Chinese are both uh, batshit crazy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say arrogant or something. But the point about it is the point about it is is and it's a theme in the book. It's Japanese paranoia, not ill founded. I might say that one day they'll wake up again, as they did in 1971, uh, when Kissinger went to China without telling them. They'll wait. The Japanese will wake up again one day and find the U.S. and China have done a big grand bargain, and they won't have been part of it. I mean, so this strange relationship between Washington and, and Tokyo, uh, I mean, it goes back. I mean, one of the wise men, um, George Kennan, actually uh, called the U.S. relationship with Japan with its partner uh, an unnatural intimacy. Uh, I think that's 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 really interesting. Uh, and then again, I mean, your book is just full of all these people like Kissinger, like Scowcroft, like like uh, James Baker and Zelik, who, who, yeah, like I think. Our listeners are going to understand implicitly. I think mean, they maybe remember the, the podcast we did with John Pomfret, where we talked about that, that sort of weird bond between Chinese and Americans, and then the difficulties of you know they don't like China, they like the Chinese. Uh, that that's that's pretty understandable. I think they don't really get this whole Japan thing. You talk in one of your early chapters about the pressure that the Japanese leadership got and and still gets from both the left and the right against its pro-U.S. lean um, from the left over what this dangerous enmeshment with militarized capitalism, as you call it, and from the right over the victor's justice about, you know, the tribunals and the the, the pacifist constitution, the the whole uh, forced economic alignment, you know, which doesn't necessarily serve Japanese interests, this alignment with the U.S., uh, and then add to that, of course, the far right in Japan, which, you know, we, we probably know hates both the U.S. and China in equal measure, maybe. Uh, can you talk about the darker side of this this U.S.-Japan relationship? The funny thing about it is the, the part of Japan that in many ways is most uh, in favor of the U.S. alliance uh, in a practical sense, they also carry deep resentment against the U.S., and I think Shinzo Abe is a classic example of this. Why do they resent the U.S.? Well, they lost the war. Nobody forgets that. Uh, look at what happened in Charlottesville in the U.S. recently. Nobody forgets being on the losing side. They're angry that the U.S. imposed a constitution on them, the so-called pacifist constitution, which, of course, became extremely popular in China, but the right in, in, uh, in Japan, but the right in Japan considered that a sort of a loss of their independence, and they have a point. Victor's justice is another thing. Uh, the opening to China, which completely blindsided right. Japan. The trade wars, let's not forget that. They went from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and caused a lot of bitterness on both sides. And, of course, the history issue. You know, By the Obama administration, Obama was giving lectures to Abe about history saying, fix this issue and because it's helping China. And, of course, uh, he didn't like that. So there's a whole... You know, you know, catalog of issues under the surface, which are still there, which I think is important to understand. Richard, I mean, I think this um, sort of goes to the heart of your book in some ways, the relationship between China and Japan. And perhaps nothing sums up that relationship more than this one quote from your book. Despite their shared roots, Japan and China have remained as psychically remote as they are geographically close. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this uh a psychic distance. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I didn't go back to the sixth and seventh century, but you can even see during the first contact. Then, the Japanese obviously inherited, borrowed, received a lot of Chinese culture. Even to this day, they revere Chinese culture, but they've never been close as countries. Uh, and even back at that time, sixth, seventh century, you could see the Japanese and Chinese raging against other against each other for the other sort of refusing to submit. You know, it's not like Europe. In Europe, you've got all these sort of uh, you know, royal families intermarrying, the elites mixing with each other, uh, sort of co-joined cultures, even despite wars between each other. And Japan and China, perhaps because they're separated by a sea, have never had that intimacy. And also, I think the 
you know, I often used to think this idea of the, you know, the old Chinese mentality of the tributary system of relationship with China, the center, the middle kingdom, and every other country having to sort of submit to that. I used to think that was a bit of a cliche, but the Japanese really think it's true. In other words, they do think that China sees itself as a center and expects others to be subordinate in some fashion. And they say, well, we've never been subordinate and we're not going to be. And China just has to get used to that. And there's a sort of, you know, inbuilt conflict in that. I know with approval, you were very careful about the way you worded that, saying that it's the Japanese perception because it's become very popular now to think that that is somehow, I mean, I think it's a, it's a species of, of, of essentialism to think that that's what China really wants to do, you know, to recreate this notional tribute system. I think a lot of this book is, is about historical memory. Uh, and yet you deal with this very, I think, in a very sensitive way. Uh, you write about China as a place where many young people have a way of vividly remembering wars they never actually experienced. You just mentioned Charlottesville. And, and yeah, there, there's a lot of that, that that same thing. Jeremy and I both live in the American South. Um, we're, we're, we're familiar with uh, what they call the backward glance, right? We know, we know about, you know, about that. Uh, elsewhere, you talk about the never ending scramble for the high ground on history. Any, any note that the issue of Japanese culpability in the war uh, has lingered in the bloodstream of East Asian politics since the war's end. I think listeners are, again, very familiar with the reasons that recent, you know, Chinese leaders haven't wanted closure. You know, they find it still quite useful. And, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but what was interesting to me is that you seem to lay some of the blame. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here, but you seem to lay some of the blame for sidelining history on the Americans, uh, who for various reasons swept things under the rug at moments where, you know, a kind of proper reckoning might have headed off a whole lot of, you know, anguish down the line. Can you talk about the way that, that America helped to sideline, uh, kind of closure or, or, or a confrontation, a reckoning with history? Yeah, well, obviously, I have 2020 hindsight and the like, and some of these areas have been raked over in the past. I mean, the most famous one was the decision in 1945 to keep Hirohito on. Uh, in Japan immediately after the war. And I, I can understand that decision. But, you know, the early years of the US occupation were very liberal, uh, almost left-leaning in many respects, but that turned on its head once the Cold War set in and Japan then became, you know, first and foremost, just a, a bulwark for the US anti-communist uh, um, position in the Cold War. And everything that happened before then in history, everything sort of the nasty the Japanese had done was just put to one side. Um, and I, you know, people had a lesser understanding perhaps of the way these issues would, would continue on in the bloodstream in a toxic fashion, as I say. You know, there wasn't in the fifties, even in Germany, there wasn't a big bit, lots of talk about apologies and the like. Mm. But I think the US really had Japan as a client state. They really didn't want the history issue, the war issue to be uh, part of the conversation. They didn't want it to disturb the alliance they had. They didn't want to put pressure on the right wing because the right wing were, were working with them at that time against the Soviets. And so they kind of forgot about it. And when it all resurfaced really in, in a big way, I guess, from the mid-90s, Nobody knew how to handle it. The U.S. didn't know how to handle it. They they thought that if they spoke to the Japanese about it, there'd be a backlash. Um, and so they sat on the sidelines, frankly, while it festered, uh, not just with China, with South Korea as well, um, until it really did become destabilizing. And the Obama administration felt that it had to pick it up and talk to the Japanese much more directly. Hmm. So, Richard, I mean, uh, do do you think that it is in part the uh, American sense of guilt over the nuclear bombing uh, of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki that is responsible for America not really pressing Japan on its history in the past? Well, it's an interesting point, Jeremy. I put it slightly differently. There's a surprising lack of sense of guilt about dropping two atomic bombs on the Japanese. But I guess what they, the Americans realize that it's, it's a pretty good debating point. You know, uh, the Japanese saying, well, don't lecture us about history. You dropped two atomic bombs on our city. That settled it. You know, so why do we need to sort of talk <laughs> about this anymore? You know, don't take the moral high ground with me. So it's, uh, you know, the U.S. has never really wanted to reflect on that because the dominant view in the U.S. is that the dropping the A-bombs saved lives. 
Right. Um, because otherwise there would have had to have a invasion of the Japanese mainland. And this um, nice round million people would have died number. Gets, that's, that's know, right. yeah, there's a big debate about that. But I think it, the, the real thing is the, the U.S. felt, well, we can't talk too loudly because um, it's not as though we uh, uh, didn't take off the gloves as well. Right, 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 right. So people who are unfamiliar with the history and certainly – I mean, I can attest to this. Many Chinese people today are, are really unaware of what China's attitudes were toward Japan and, and, you know, their attitudes about war guilt during the, the 50s and the 60s. In fact, you, you chalk some of the inability to come to terms with, uh, to a kind of like colossally bad timing that, you know, uh, I'm going to quote here, Japan's period of soul searching about the war was in the 50s and the 60s, which is precisely the time when China wasn't interested. So what was, what was China after from from Japan in the fifties? Uh, I mean, they were were they really trying to lure Japan out of the American orbit? I mean, what was the the, the deal? Well, in the fifties, China was suffering from a U.S. embargo. They wanted to break that or alleviate it, and Japan was potentially their greatest uh, weapon in doing so. And it was it's really striking, and there's a lot more research about this being done now about how close. Japan and China were in many ways. The US tolerated that up to a point because they wanted the Japanese economy to grow. Japan was by far China's biggest trading partner. Many Japanese leaders, both on the left and right across the party spectrum, wanted closer ties with China. I mean, there was a sense of guilt, a, sen- a sense of you know Asian fraternalness, if you like, and sheer economic interest uh, because they thought they'd be in on the, the ground floor in an eventual Chinese miracle. And they almost actually concluded diplomatic ties in that period until the U.S. put its foot down. And, of course, Shinzo Abe's grandfather, Kishi, came to power and uh, swung Japan back to Taiwan and the like. So on the Chinese side, you know, Mao was very much a dictator. I don't think he had too many moral scruples. He didn't want to look backwards. He was quite brutally, sardonically honest in some respects that he knew that you know, the, the Japanese uh, um, had, in many respects, helped the communists come to power by fighting against Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. Uh, Richard, let, let, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, <clears throat> I think um, some famous quotes from Mao, uh, he said, you can't be asked to apologize every day, can you? It's not good for a, ma- a nation to feel constantly guilty, and we can understand that point. He also said we'd still be in the mountains and unable to watch Peking Opera in Beijing if it wasn't for the Japanese invasion. Um, and he also said, I think, that it was exactly because the Imperial Japanese Army took up more than half of China. There was no way out for the Chinese people. If a thank you is needed, I actually would like to thank the Japanese warlords. Joe Lai also was a, a major proponent of improved relations with Japan. Can, can you um, flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, is this well known in China? No, it's not. Well, I don't think it's very well known in China. And uh, I just love those quotes. And I particularly love the first quote, uh, which Mao said to a uh, Japanese delegation, I think, in 1954, you know, which is sort of like, oh, stop apologizing. We're, we're done with that. Let's, let's get on with life. Um, that is not at front and center of Chinese school textbooks <laughs> really? these days, I can tell you. Uh, the <laughs> other quote about Mao thanking the Japanese is kind of a famous one. And when you, you know, play that back to Chinese officials these days, they kind of squirm, uh, about it. Uh, and in fact, Mao is sort of touching on, in his own perverse fashion, one of the Communist Party's creation myths that they won the war against Japan, whereas they did very little of the fighting against Japan. It was mainly uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Um, but that was just Mao trying to sort of play, seduce the Japanese to uh, to to basically break the U.S. embargo. So he didn't care about the war. He had other fish to fry at that time. Uh, and that's why he didn't emphasize it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, when I suggest that you lay some of the blame at, at America's feet, um, I guess what I was talking about, I mean, for, for the, the failure to sort of reconcile, I'm, I'm talking about the Treaty of San Francisco, really. So you argue that it really stymied the original Japanese intention of pursuing better relations, for example, you know, by pressing them on, on the issue of, of recognition. You know, they recognized, as, as the U.S. and many other countries did, the nationalist government rather than uh, rather than the PRC, uh, when apparently there was there was a lot of 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 
dissent from that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the treaty and, and Japanese resistance to that? Yeah. Because I mean, it's, it's in the same context of the 1950s, right? Yeah, I think a lot more work needs to be done on this than I'm sure historians have done or uh, are doing it. But to, to put it in context, the San Francisco Treaty returned sovereignty to Japan. In other words, you know, it ended the US occupation. Japan at that time, as a sovereign nation, wanted to recognize the PRC, uh, Beijing, as the government of China. And the US basically said to them, well, if you do that, then the Senate won't ratify the San Francisco Treaty. In other words, you won't get your sovereignty back, so you'd better recognize Taiwan. So the truth is that Japan recognized Taiwan as the government of China with a gun at its head put, put there by the US. That's really, really interesting. Richard, I imagine many people in our listening audience and perhaps, uh, well, I include myself, aren't very familiar with the state of relations between China and Japan on the eve of the Nixon opening to China and uh, don't know how shocked Japan was by the opening. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is sort of etched into the seared, I should say, into the Japanese psyche. through the 50s and 60s, Japan had never stopped wanted, wanting to sort of re- reach out to the PRC, in fact, recognize the PRC. Uh, there was obviously an internal debate about that in Japan and some split, but that had always been, I think, the overwhelming view in both the ruling conservative party, Liberal Democratic Party, and also the, the, the Socialist Party. But the US always stopped them. And in fact, in the, in the few years before Kissinger's secret trip to China, the US had actively you know, made sure that the Japanese did not do that. And they sort of said, no, 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 don't do that. We're handling China. If we do anything with China, we'll let you know. Don't worry, we've got it in hand. And I think they literally gave the Japanese government hours notice before President Nixon went on TV to announce that uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Kissinger had either just been in China or was on his way back. And so they have never forgiven the US for that in Japan. It, it sounds like it's a, a long time to hold a grudge, but this is an absolutely funda- issue of fundamental national interest in Japan. And they felt screwed over by their ally. And so they don't forget that. I mean, it's, it's sort of like two good girlfriends, one of them who keeps saying, don't date that guy. He's gross. He's, oh, you would not, you don't want to date that guy. No, no, stay away from him. <laughs> and then, um, hey, so I've got a date tonight with that guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or in fact, I went out with him last night. Right. I went out with him last night. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, I can, I can see why, why the, the shock. We we talk about the difficulty of periodization here, but and there aren't really you know many periods where you can easily say relations were good or relations were bad. But there was one relatively short period where Sino-Japanese relations were sort of at their best, and that was in the early 1980s. Uh, in fact, sort of three-way relations were all kind of shiny and new in in that period. Can you talk about that time about you know Deng's visit to Japan, about Hu Yaobang's visit in 1983, and and yeah, what went I think, wrong? I think most students of U.S.-China relations have vivid memories of Deng's visit to the US, yeah. uh, I think in 79, and he'd been going to the Rodeo in Houston and uh, putting on the 10-gallon hat, and this was a, a big moment. Uh, he'd actually been to Japan uh, a few months prior to that, and I think that was almost just as big an event, you know, because Japan at that time was a, as it had been, frankly, in the 1920s, a showcase for Asian modernization. It was uh, an advanced market economy, it had, of course, fantastic technology, including the Shinkansen, the bullet train. And there was really a you know, great potential for a, not a marriage between those two countries, but for the two countries to, to be very close, but more importantly, for Japan to help Deng in his ambition for modernization. And that's exactly what Japan did. And so for about six, seven years from that point onwards, uh, that J- J- Sino-Japanese relations were very good. Deng was one driver. He sort of sprinkled holy water on it. His leadership from the top is important. The other big driver was Hu Yabang, who was the reformist Communist Party secretary uh, in the 80s. And he had many people. Uh, he took many peop- interesting people on his early trips to Japan in the 1980s. I'll tell you two of them quickly. Hu Jintao, mm-hmm. uh, who always remained favorably disposed to Japan. He was part of the Communist Youth League, which was Hu Yaobang's power base. 
And also the person who wrote uh, Hu Yabang's speeches was Wang Yi, the current foreign minister, who's a Japan expert. And so there was a real blossoming at that time and a real sense of optimism, but it all fell down eventually on the fights about history. But it, it fell down for other reasons as well, internal Chinese politics. I mean, one of the things that it was perceived that Hu was too generous to Japan, that he was sort of giving giving away the store to Japan, yeah? Yeah, I think the it's you're right. I mean, this was showed just even though relations were good, Japan was a potent internal weapon inside party politics in China. And so when the charge sheet was drawn up in 1987 against Hu about all the bad things he'd done, this is when Deng decided to get rid of him, obviously he was too pro-market, there'd been too, too many problems caused by the rapid pace of reform in China, inflation, problems with the currency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think the second big charge against him was uh, that he was too close to Japan. He'd been too generous to Japan in inviting Japanese students to China. And once that, uh, once that sort of was raised against him, I think it was very hard to, to argue back against. Richard, how about, can we talk about the sort of mid to late 1980s when Beijing's leadership found itself the target of anti-Japanese demonstrations in China and how Nakasone really understood the dynamic in China and pledged to end the visits to the Yasukuni Shrine to war martyrs? Yes, that was the, there were a number of things happening there. Um, Huya Bang was under attack uh, in China. Nakasone, the uh, Japanese prime minister, who was a very internationalist figure, as well also being a nationalist figure, felt some responsibility to try and support him. Um, uh, when there were the, the issue, which was the first big blow up about Yasukuni Shrine uh, in the mid 80s, um, after Huyabang had raised it with Nakasone, Nakasone uh, agreed not to go anymore. That was the first concession. The second big concession was when the textbook issue blew up for the first time in the early 80s, early to mid 80s. Uh, once again, the, the Japanese made a big concession. They said to China and South Korea, we'll have a na- an Asian neighbors or a- Asian partners clause and, and modify our textbooks to keep the sort of you know, extreme right wing narrative out of it. So they tried to sort of put a, a, a dampener on these things. But I think it what it really illustrated was that all these issues which Mao and others had tried to put to one side never really went away. They were always there. It only took a few people on either side in either country to sort of stir them up. And once you stir them up, it was very difficult to put, put them in back in the box. So I think that's the, that's the story of the late 80s. Even with goodwill at the top, political will at the top, Once you sort of let let the genie out of the bottle, um, it was very hard to put it back. And, you know, Hu Hu Yaobang, Yaobang, he had sort of let two genies out. I mean, the one thing was uh, he was on the wrong side of the Japan debate. Uh, Suddenly he found himself on the wrong side. And the very sort of students who he had empowered, the the sort of uh, stirrings of, you know, the pre-89, this is the 86-87 demonstrations, they suddenly had seen that it was very double-edged, that nationalism was double-edged, that they had embraced this kind of anti-Japanese nationalism and had turned it against the party. And so who was on the wrong side? He was responsible for both the the fact that the students were demonstrating and the fact that the students were demonstrating against the party using nationalism as a cudgel, right? So, I mean, he was kind of screwed. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the 1986-87 anti-Japanese demonstrations were the precursor to the 1989 anti-government demonstrations because they were triggered in 89, of course, when Huyabang died. That's right. And the students then uh, used his death to hit the streets, and that's how 1989 happened. Absolutely. That's 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 fascinating. I think it's um, but you know we're talking about these individuals, right? You know Hu Yabang, and then we're talking about Nakasone. Um, one of the vexing things in reading this is that you're never really sure. Uh, well, first of all, the, that broader question, you know, that Tolstoyan question, or uh, is it is it these individual characters who drive history, or are they sort of the product of their times? And reading your book, I can't help but conclude that that there are family histories and individual personalities that, that really do drive the dynamic along the triangle on all three sides. And, and that's, that's really fascinating. Um, you know, they, they are not entirely free to pursue the policies that, that they want. You know, they're inhibited 
uh, again, like by these factional actors and by these interest groups. Uh, so, so what is it? I mean, is it, what causes them to do what they do? Uh, is it the domestic political considerations? Is it, you know, are, are they throwing bones to the base? Uh, is it the, the broader calculus? I mean, where, where do you come down on this? Well, it's, it's a number of things. I try not to be dogmatic about it. Obviously, there's ordinary geopolitics. These are rival countries. And, you know, at different times, one is getting stronger, the other weaker. Uh, there's always going to be geopolitics. I don't think geopolitics is the sole driver, as some people say, because the history issues were there even without the geopolitical conflict. I think that's important. I think it's also important to remember, and I should make this point, there's one reason that Chinese propaganda about Japan works, against Japan works, is that it's based on real events. You know, there was a Nanking massacre. Japan did invade China. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people were killed. Uh, a lot of Chinese propaganda is based on, on um, you know, untruths to be charitable. The anti-Japanese stuff is not. Now, obviously, it's used, misused, weaponized, etc., etc., but it's not based on outright lies. There was a Unit 731. There was there a were, Unit right. 731. Uh, there were vivisection experiments, um, etc. It's, you know, the Nanjing massacre is not fake news, etc. So, you know, there's a potent base to, you know, there's lots of uh, material, raw material to stir up if you want to do that. And the fact that Mao had papered over all that didn't uh, mean that ordinary Chinese people lost their memories of it or their families lost their memories of it. And so the fact that the two sides had never grappled with it, you know, they, there's no, they, you know, the Japanese when they, and the Chinese when they uh, restored diplomatic ties in 1972, they didn't discuss the war very much at all. There were no sort of, you know, shared memorials. There were no, nothing that they did together to try and exercise what was real history. So it just sort of sat there until somebody decided it would sort of, that they'd bring it to the surface. So there are four things that perennially come up with the Sino-Japanese relationship. Maybe we can talk about uh, contrition for Japanese war crimes, textbooks in Japan, which uh, seek to uh, fuzz uh, about what Japan did in China in the war, the Yasukuni shrine visits, and comfort women. Uh, do you want to talk about those things? Yeah, maybe we can start with apology, the contrition, you know, the, the whole, this whole business yeah, of apology. Yeah, I mean, the, I the mean. Uh, apologies, they, um, China never really, until the mid-80s or so, really wanted an official apology. They did want Japan to acknowledge the war. They did want Japan to say sorry, but they never really made a big deal about it. It wasn't their priority. And they certainly never wanted reparations either. They basically pushed that to one side. Uh, which may have been sort of cynical of them or noble of them, however you think about it. Um, and that's so the Japanese conservatives, I think, in many respects thought, oh, that's good. We've solved that. We don't have to deal with that anymore. We can, uh, we can just salve our guilty conscience by giving China lots of aid and we can build their economy and we can all prosper together. So when the issue of an apology came back, uh, in global politics, apologies also or made, a, made, a, made a comeback in many countries, not just in Japan and China. But when it came back in the mid-90s, I don't think the Japanese knew how to handle it. Then the Japanese did apologize a number of times, but they thought, you know, that the Jap Chinese just ignored it. And so we got to the point where the Chinese were demanding more apologies and the Japanese were tired of giving them. And so when they did give them, they were quite insincere Um and as somebody put it to me, and I thought this was a great quote, you know, every time Japan apologizes, another Japanese person unapologizes. Right. And so they have no impact. Well, there's that. And then there's the fact that, you know, every time it's when you have to argue over the specific words of the apology, and so they, they're so contested and so negotiated. And when they just sort of barely clear this bar of acceptability, that's not any kind of an apology. No, right? you want an apology to have an emotional force. And they simply right. became uh, political statements, which by the time they dropped out of the Japanese system had no impact. That, that handles that pretty neatly. What about the textbook issue? Uh, Textbooks I mean, is. I guess, I guess the main thing I want to ask is you flicked at, at this uh, early on. Nakasuni had talked about trying to resolve this in the early 1980s, um, bringing together you know China, Japan, and South Korea to sort of negotiate uh, a shared idea of of what happened. What what happened with that project specifically? 
Well, I think for a time the there was some constraint on the side of Japan in textbooks. But, but I want to make a couple of things clear here, though. And you don't get this from looking at the issue from the Chinese and South Korean side. You know, the Japanese textbooks at that time, certainly, I think it might have changed a little now, were very critical of Japanese wartime behavior. A tiny minority of textbooks were used uh, in schools, in Japanese schools, I think, broadly like US schools, you know, the school itself would choose which textbook they used. Very few Japanese schools used the textbooks with denialist passages about the war, but they were held up as though all of Japan, all Japanese school children uh, were reading them. Well, very few American textbooks teach creationism, but, you know, it, it, it's no less of, a, of, a, of an issue, right? That's right. It's worth making a fuss about it, but creationism being taught in U.S. schools is not a matter of national policy. Right. right. Um, and, that, and the same applied, I think, in many respects to Japan. But it's over time, I think, uh, the right wing has become more powerful in Japan. And, the, and, the, and they just say these days, well, you look at South Korean textbooks, look at Chinese textbooks, they're doing it, so we're going to do it as well. So they've all sort of, you know, on, on one hand, gone back behind the lines and built their own fortresses. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of textbooks uh, in Japan which still talk about the war as an invasion, not an advance, etc., etc., which don't gloss over entirely the history. Now, they don't teach it like the Germans do. That's another question. But not every Japanese uh, textbook d- denies uh, the Imperial Japan's uh, atrocities in World War II. Uh, I guess let's talk about uh, Yasukuni Shrine visits. Maybe we can introduce, I mean, that there's a villain in the story, at least from the point of view of, of the Chinese, uh, from the US, maybe, and even from more mainstream LDP uh, politicians. It's Shintaro uh, Ishihara, the, the mayor of Tokyo. Uh, tell us about his rise, about you know his Blue Storm Society, how they manipulated the veterans lobby and sort of normalized this whole Yasukuni Shrine visit and came to sort of lay this expectation at the feet of, of many uh, Japanese PM. Yeah, there's a lot of really murky uh, uh, internal Japanese politics, internal conservative Japanese politics of uh, Japanese and Ishihara Shintaro is a classic example of that. He was a kind of a handsome young sort of uh, um, not matinee idol author, I think. Um, uh, he then became an MP, later was governor of Tokyo for many years. Um, he makes all sorts of outrageous statements about denying the Nanjing massacre and all that sort of thing, which from outside Japan makes him look like a crank. But for inside Japan, he's actually a, a very clever politician at sort of turning the nationalist wick up now and again when he wants to and when it suits him. But he was active, you know, as early as the 70s huh. in, you know, organizing cabals within the Liberal Democratic Party, critical of the deal to uh, uh, open diplomatic ties with China in 1972, uh, critical of friendly relations with China at all. He's been a constant stirrer of trouble up over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands and, you know, bought Japan and China close to some sort of military conflict in 2012. So in the book, I've tried to track the role of people like him inside Japan right. in using this issue for their own ends. Uh, that's that's the, a fascinating facet of the book. Uh, in in Sh- Shintaro Shihara's case, you uh, relate this passage. I mean, this is just in the run up to the, the 2012 crisis in the, the late summer and the early fall of 2012. But he came to the U.S. and gave a speech at the Heritage Foundation. Can you, can you talk about that? It was a crazy speech. Um, I'm not sure whether it's online anymore. It certainly was when I looked at it at one stage. But yeah, the Heritage Foundation, I spoke to them, they hadn't invited him there to sort of make a big statement about the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. Yeah, he, he sort of arrived at the podium. He has all these sort of odd issues he raises along the way about Western philosophy, this, that, and the other. And then finally, at the end of it, just makes this uh, statement about this in Kakudiayu Island saying, well, well, aliens or something, wasn't there? <laughs> aliens, all sorts of things. I had a long list and I haven't got them in front of me right now. But he, he just says at the end of it, the speech, well, I think we, uh, we have to stand up to China. They're, they're sort of rubbing our nose in it. And the way to do that is to uh, uh, buy these islands. So we're going to buy these islands. And, you know, that means you know, put the Japanese flag on them and give a big middle finger to China, which, of course, he hadn't told the... Uh, central government about 
but you know this this really would have been a red rag to China. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was determined to do it, and that's how we got into the crisis of 2012 because the Japanese central government thought the only way we can solve it is if we buy them ourselves. And for China, that was still uh, that was still an outrage. We'll get to the crisis of 2012 then, because that's really sort of the the the, the and that's still playing out right now. Um, but one more thing on, on comfort women, Richard. Can you help us to understand? Uh, Japan's apparent inability to deal squarely with the issue of comfort woman uh, and their strange tone deafness to uh, the way this is perceived in China and Korea. Yes, it is. Um, tone deafness is one way. Uh, uh, autistic uh, is another way. <laughs> um, outrageous. You know, there's all manner of uh, ways of talking about it. But let me let me say a few things. At first, the comfort women, the you know the terrible euphemism for sex slaves, uh, it's mainly a South Korean issue more so than China. But obviously, China takes advantage of it. I was living in Japan in the early '90s when, in fact, they did try to grapple with this initially with a, a man called Yohei Kono, who I think he was a senior member, uh, moderate member of the ruling Conservative Party. And he forced through a, a very good statement uh, at that time, acknowledging the Japanese government's role in setting up these uh, wartime brothels and the like. And, you know, sort of you would have thought dealt with the issue. But the problem was within the system, uh, there are some really incorrigible far right wingers who insist that one of these things who insist that Japan did nothing wrong that they were doing only what all sorts of other countries were doing in allowing prostitution uh, during the war for the soldiers or in the post-war period. Uh, and they kept unwinding the position that Mr. Kono had set out. Now, there are a, a number of people who did this, but I think Shinzo Abe has also been guilty of this, in some respects playing to a part of his right-wing base by talking about, well, you know, the government really didn't do it. They weren't really forced into it, you know, continually raising an issue which is just bound to not just set off hackles in China and South Korea, but more importantly in the US, particularly these days where, unlike during the wartime, people have a sense of women's rights, uh, what happened to what happens to women during war, rape during war and the like. It's the kind of issue that reopening it is just... There's no upside for it. And I think many people couldn't understand why Japanese conservatives kept talking about that. And it took a lot, actually, to make them shut up. Richard, I think we're all pretty, most of our listeners are probably familiar with the way that Japan is covered in China, in the media. Um, how is China covered in Japan? You, you bring this up in your book when you're writing about the period right after Koizumi left office in 2006. And you quote a, a top Japanese diplomat saying, the public loves to see China blasted in the press. Unfortunately, it's got to that point. I mean, I should say that the Japanese coverage of China is far fairer and far more diverse and far more open than Chinese coverage of Japan. I mean, low bar. A low bar, it is. But Japan is a democracy. It has many dark corners, but it still uh, has a you know basically free press. But it's certainly true, and I think the sort of antagonism you see in the Japanese press towards China these days really reflects where public opinion has got in Japan, um, and in some respects in China as well. If you go back to the early 80s, the you know, the so-called golden era of Sino-Japanese relations, you'll find that about 80%, 90% of people in both countries had a favorable view of each other. You come back uh, to the 21st century, and that's gone to about 10%, 15% on either side. I mean, it's a terrible deterioration uh, in both countries of their view of each other. And I think the Japanese press is pandering to that. And in some respects, they're reflecting sort of widespread Japan bashing uh, inside China. Let's move now to the, the crisis of 2012, which is, is just so very interesting. Um, you described an encounter. Uh, this is one of the many colorful bits of your book, but I, I love this section. Uh, in, in September 2012 at APEC between Hu Jintao and uh, Japanese PM, who was it? Yoshiko Noda at the time, right? Uh, is related by an American diplomat named uh, Robert Hormatz and, and other people there. And Hillary Clinton was, was watching this happen as well. Uh, it was really amazing. Can you, can you tell that story? 
I thought that was an amazing story, actually, because they, they had a kind of one of these small meetings at, at APEC instead of each leader having... Vladivostok or something? Vladivostok, that's yeah. right. Instead of having, you know, each leader and their 50 hangers-on, they had each leader and one or two other people. And um, this is when the sort of the, the Senkaku Diaoyu crisis was brewing. Uh, the Chinese had basically said, there's nothing to talk about, don't nationalize the islands, um, uh, and uh, had refused top-level meetings. And so Hu Jintao and Noda, the Japanese prime minister, were stuck in this small room. And Noda marched up to Hu Jintao. Um, and uh, there wasn't a direct J- Japanese-Chinese interpreter. There was, I think, Hu Jintao had somebody who could interpret into English. So they had to sort of do a sort of three-way language. And to use a, a popular uh, this word- is, That's a perfect metaphor for this book. I mean, the U- Chinese-American relationship mediated through... Uh, Chinese Japanese three way language mediated through <laughs> yeah through America. yeah and and with a bunch of uh, uh, diplomats and foreign secretaries from other countries leaders just sort of sitting around watching it unfold in front of them because Noda walked up to Hu Jintao and said we have to talk and Hu Jintao said no way don't you dare nationalize those islands there'll be a big problem if you do that and apparently Noda sort of then took a step closer uh, to use a phrase popularized by a former Australian prime minister, he shirt fronted him, sort of sat right up in his, in his, in front of his face and said, we have to talk. You and I, our foreign secretaries have got to meet each other. And Hu Jintao said, no way. You know, don't you dare do that. There'll be severe consequences if you do so. And I think the whole room was apparently agog. Hillary Clinton, I think, was standing to the side of the room and sort of said to her, Robert Hormats later, I mean, what on earth happened there? And, of course, the Japanese went out of the room, had a meeting afterwards uh, in the room, and they decided there and then to go ahead with the nationalization. They thought, well, this is not going to get any better. We're going to do this. We just may as well do this quickly. And uh, that was a big reason for the fury of Chinese reaction. Um, Richard, uh, you know, on this point, I think you note that the nationalization of the uh, islands happened at a moment of in what one could say was a massive internal crisis in China. Um, what was happening in the late summer and the fall of 2012 in China that, uh, you know, was such a crisis for the Communist Party? For yeah. those one or two listeners of ours who don't remember. <laughs> yeah, well, the um, this is fascinating for me because I don't think it was really appreciated at the time. And as is often the case with Chinese politics, I've often thought of covering Chinese politics is like sort of covering ancient history. You know, you pick up a little shard here, a little bit of a pot here, a little bit of a pot here, and eventually you can start years later to piece together what happened. Now, in 2012, we knew there were big stresses within the Communist Party. Bo Xilai had gone down earlier that year, I think in about March. Um, uh, it was a year of transition. Xi Jinping ready to take over from Hu Jintao. Uh, but we didn't realize, I think, until later, the extent of the infighting <clears throat> at the top of the Communist Party. It wasn't just Bo Xilai. Uh, the investigations were started against Zhou Yongkang. Uh, Xi Jinping, I thought, felt later that uh, this cabal, secret cabal, might even have been trying to prevent him from taking over as General Secretary of the Communist Party. There were rumors of a coup even, right? Rumors of a coup. Xi Jinping, as you remember, are one of those bizarre kind of like, you know, pre-Soviet or Soviet style happenings. He disappeared from public view for two weeks. Not a word about him in the press. Nobody knew where he was. The Americans tried to find out. They weren't, uh, weren't told. And then suddenly, uh, at the end of two weeks, he, I think he appeared at the Beijing Agricultural Show one Saturday morning, sleeves rolled up, you know, striding around mightily. To this day, nobody knows why he disappeared during that time. I'm, I'm aware of at least four different rumored explanations. They're all really kind of, you know, conspiratorial. Well, one of my favorite ones, which got into the Western press, which, you know, wanted to fill the vacuum, somebody said, uh, well, there was a meeting of all the heads of the big princeling families, all the sort of, uh, you know, redder than red families. Um, they got into a fight. Uh, they started throwing chairs at each other, and uh, Xi Jinping was hit by a chair and hurt his back. I mean, that's about as uh, uh, as as bad as it gets, I think, in terms of explanations. So speaking of Xi Jinping, I mean, there's a, a man who I think closer than anyone else sort of is his, his parallel counterpart in in Japan. And you sketch out their, their, they have both interesting, you know, sort of family histories. Um, they both were roughly coterminous. Well, I mean, obviously they're not done either, but uh, Shinzo Abe, of course. Uh, and he's kind of, you know, 
he was what grandson of Nobusuke Kishi, right? Who you had already mentioned, uh, who was already kind of anathema to, to, to Beijing. Uh, quite a few parallels. Can you lay out some of these for us? Yeah, Abe is, uh, turned out to be a very interesting character. You might remember, I think, in his first term uh, in office, uh, mainly for many reasons, but also because he was ill. He only lasted one year. He came back around the same time as Xi Jinping was elected. And it's fascinating to look at their parallel lives. You know, Both Abe and Xi Jinping, the historical roots, they're both elite political families. Their roots of their families lie in the Sino-Japanese War, Xi Jinping's father, Abe's grandfather, uh, who's his hero. Both of their families suffered backlashes or periods in the uh, doldrums or in exile after the war. Uh, they're both sort of strong leaders with a, 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 an interest much more in national security issues than the economy. Uh, in a both, in a funny way, they both have very, um, by Japanese and Chinese standards, poor educations, very average university degrees. Xi Jinping went to Tsinghua University before it had really reopened. Uh, Abe went to a sort of third or a tier Japanese university. But they both turned out to be underestimated tough leaders. And maybe that's good for the countries that they can take each other's measure, actually. At the end of the day, you know, I wonder, they also have a, an incentive to discredit each other's version of history because that's where the... You know, that's where their original uh, uh, political uh, genesis comes from. Richard, you write rather ominously that an isolationist president, a president, in other words, who simply did what Donald Trump has promised to do, uh, would be enough to deliver the last rights to Pax Americana. Are we there yet? We're not there yet. I mean, Trump in office obviously is constrained by, you know, what is pejoratively called the deep state or simply uh, the vast bureaucracy um, uh, of U.S. interests uh, uh, around the world. Um, but I think he's undermining Pax Americana. There's a great statistic the other day, I think, that uh, the Japanese foreign ministry counted. They said that since, uh, I think, I guess his election, Trump had reassured Japan about America's commitment to defend Japan about 28 times. And I thought, boy, that's too many. You know, uh, <laughs> if you've got to tell your partner 28 times you love him or her, then, you know, they, they should, just protest too they much. They right? protest too yeah. much that they would get worried. I mean, I hate to be sound like a sort of a, a, a cliched sort of individual in Washington, but I think for U.S. standing in the world, um, Trump's kind of a disaster, disaster so far. Now, can he right the ship? Maybe. But all Asian countries, including Japan, uh, have to hedge their bets. And it's difficult, you know, because Japan can't stand up to China on its own. It needs the U.S. Um, there has been some reordering of the security arrangements in, in East Asia in recent years, you know, much more not just reliant on the U.S., but Japan, China, Japan, Australia, Vietnam, Japan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yes, you know, Donald Trump is the an accelerant in the unwinding of Pax Americana. Most Asian countries will think, well, if the U.S. can uh, elect somebody like Trump once, well, they can do it again, and and they have to look after their own interests, and that might mean moving away from the U.S. Richard, we could do this all day, and I would. I mean, if I had the time, uh, but. Uh, we, we really ought to let you get on with your day. Uh, I want to remind everyone, the book is called Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, and the Fate of U.S. Power in the Pacific Century. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's it's really, seriously, it's one of the, the, the great uh, China-related books that I've read in, in recent years. So congratulations on that and uh, best of luck to you. But before I pack up, uh, let's give the listeners some recommendations, shall we? Yes, well, I've th I'm going to recommend one book that I'm reading and one uh, Netflix series I'm watching. I'm reading a reading a book called The Invention of Russia, which is about mm. how Putin's Russia came to be. It's by a former Financial Times and I think current economist journalist. I'm going to mispronounce his name, I think, Arkady uh, Ostrovsky. Mm -hmm. It's a great read about Russia, um, uh, really, I guess, in the last 40, 50 years, a really fantastic book. Uh, and what I'm watching on Netflix, I've just finished the first series, is the Israeli series about the sort of Israeli special forces or special unit, which tracks Hamas 
uh-huh. in the West Bank and Gaza uh, called Fauda. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and I watched that after reading about it in The New Yorker, and I highly recommend it. Oh, great. Yeah, I've been looking for something to, to plunge into next on, now that Game of Thrones is done. Um, I have never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. I don't think it's too late to start, You I and think. Jeremy both, right? You're like the only <laughs> two human beings on, in North America. <laughs> Jeremy, what do you have for us? All right, I, I, I would like to recommend the Twitter feed of somebody I think the three of us all know is uh, Jorge uh, Guajardo. Uh, Gu- 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 Jorge Guajardo, <laughs> last night. Uh, who, uh, the, 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 the former ambassador of Mexico to the, uh, China, who is lives in D.C. and is a caustic tweeter um, in the age of Trump. Yeah, he is, he is. Uh, he's... Very, very good. Um, like I said, we, we were just actually at his home last night. He hosted uh, Richard's book launch party, so lots of fun. Ah, I see. Okay. And your recommendations. <laughs> All very incestuous. But his Twitter feed is is very funny, and he's a very cosmopolitan Mexican who has a great take on Trump's America. <laughs> great. Uh, let me throw in another recommendation for the author, Alan First, who I've, I've recommended before. Uh, last night at, at that, that party, I ran into Adam Brooks, uh, who of course has been writing on, you know, sort of Chinese espionage. And this is, uh, his, his new book is now out in the UK and is not yet out in the US, but, uh, he's agreed to come on the show. So Jeremy, we're, we're pretty psyched. We're going to be able to talk to him about, uh, about his work. And I brought up Alan first with him and it turns out that he's a huge fan too. And so is Richard, right? You've, you've, you've read, Quite a few of these. Ollie, Richard, I think you think that... I reached an end. I think after four or so, the fifth one becomes like the rest of them. Okay. I, I mean, I can... I, the familiar kind of deliciousness of his prose, the, the evocation of place and time, it's just so great. Uh, and I, I mean, so the one that I'm reading right now is called Dark Star. And uh, what really impresses me is that, you know, I, I did a lot of Russian Soviet studies, but this unpacks the the kind of the mentality of the purge better than almost any anything that I've read academically. I mean, it's it's amazing how how well he gets gets you into the head of people who are actually living in uh the Russia of the mid 1930s. It's just it's it's great great stuff. Anyway, uh so a, another recommendation for the works of Alan Alan Trist and especially this book Dark Star. Uh, thanks very much, Richard. That was so much fun. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on. Good luck on the, on the book tour. Thank you. Thank you, thanks, Jeremy. Richard. Jeremy, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you got to come to Nashville. Yeah, come, come through Chapel Hill. Are you oh. coming through Chapel Hill? We, we have a great independent bookstore Oh, that's, that's the run, one run um, by Anne Pratchett. Yeah, I just correct. read her book, yeah. Commonwealth. So it come was and great. Give a talk. I'll, I'll, I'll hook, I'll, I'll set yeah, it up. Yeah, I just read her novel. I loved it, actually. Well, come to the Flyleaf in Yeah, in no, I thought we might do a, a road tour, so be careful what you wish for. No, no, we, absolutely. Uh, and we'll, we can maybe reprise this podcast in front of an, a live audience. Uh, anyway, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. It's produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.